Welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to The Dark Parts, a show where we explore the darkest parts of history, the world, and your mind. I'm your host, Heath, and with me today, as always, is the queen of Scream, Daphne. Daphne, how you doing? I am doing swell, still kind of recovering from our Halloween party the other night, which was awesome. Yeah, Uh, that was a blast. It was so much fun. We had a photo booth. I think I said that last time, but that was really the the selling point. Yeah, and then it? and then at the end of the night it ended up being a pool party which was just like super bonkers. We had Halloween on the projector outside. It was so awesome. So still recovering, but today it's been kind of gloomy and we watched Home Alone 2. It's just kind of getting into the cozy winter season, quote unquote winter in LA. Yeah, those November things that you do right after Halloween like it was like almost immediately there was that switch like, all right, Halloween is over. Let's take down everything and it's time for Home Alone. Yeah, I'm like ready to put up our tree already, which, you know, I don't know. I'm down if you're down. I mean, I'm always down. Um, <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I, I'm doing good. Yeah, um, I pretty much love every holiday. Um, Halloween's obviously my favorite, but I do love Christmas and Thanksgiving. I just like being with family, really. It's just nice that when the best holiday ends, which is Halloween, you still have something to look forward to and, and just fun holiday time. And then you get to January and then it just sucks. Yeah, it just really sucks ass. Like January through like April just kind of sucks ass. It's boring. Just no like... offense to anybody who has birthdays in between that time. Because... Yeah, we don't. So we just have nothing to look forward to. Yeah, nothing going on. So today we're going to talk about some really sciencey stuff. I hope you guys are, yeah, if you like science fiction, then you'll probably be interested in this. Give us a little sneak peek. All right, so science. So fascinating and groundbreaking, led by some of the most intelligent people on the planet, but in some cases, also the most strange and unusual people. Sometimes experiments appear to be well thought out and even go off without a hitch, expanding our knowledge of life and the universe. But we're not here to talk about those nerds. Oh, no. This show is the dark parts, friends. Yeah, I love the movie Weird Science, too. But sometimes the most intelligent people are also the biggest lunatics and just want to see what will happen if they sew your mouth to someone's butt. So grab your lab coat and Bunsen burner because things are about to get heavy, Marty, in today's scientific story that we call The Mad Scientist. If you like science fiction films like Heath and I, then you've probably seen a number of them that involve a scientist that's just like too smart for their own good or possibly too evil. Or possibly both. Today, we're going to look at a few of those individuals throughout history and see why they're so interesting. First, let's have a little fun and learn a bit about one of the most infamous fictional characters known as none other than Victor Frankenstein. A woman named Mary Shelley Wollstonecraft, who I am actually a descendant of, came up with the terrifying tale we know today as Frankenstein in 1816. She had been with her husband Percy and a group of friends, including poet Lord Byron, on one rainy day when the group decided to have a competition to see who could write the most horrific, scary story in the group, which is so fun. Like, what a cool, productive group activity. Yeah, that's like what they did for fun back then. They're like, let's write some scary stories. (laughs) So sick. So the others relayed their stories, but none of them really spooked anyone. That is, until Mary Shelley revealed her tale about a deranged scientist who was determined to reanimate a corpse using spare body parts and electricity. 
Everyone in the group was in awe of this chilling tale and begged her to publish her writing. So in 1818, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, also known as the modern Prometheus, was released. And fun fact, during this scary story competition, a friend in the group named John Polidori, also known as Polly Dolly, lol, who was Lord Byron's physician, had actually created a decent story called The Vampire, about a suave, aristocratic lord who seduces young women before killing them. Well, eventually that story was published, but not by old Polly Dolly, but by Lord Byron himself, who had stolen the story and taken credit for it. So eventually, this would be the inspiration for Bram Stoker's novel Dracula. So two very infamous universal monsters were created from this one rainy summer day back in 1816. How crazy is like, that? That is insane to me. And our, we actually watched The Drunk. If you haven't seen The Drunk History on Frankenstein, you should because that episode is so funny and so well done. And it just explains everything we just said. But that is, ever since we watched that, I had no idea that that was a thing. Yeah, and that I is didn't, insane. Yeah, I didn't either. But then also like the, the funny details about how like, they were all kind of like sleeping with each other and like doing drugs. And yeah, that was like a crazy little 1816 party they had. And I can't believe that we forgot to mention earlier of this episode of all episodes that you were Frankenstein's monster for Halloween the other day. I mean, kindy. Kind of. Kindy. <laughs> a very shitty version. Uh, yeah, you tried. You tried. But, you know, those are just fictional stories thought up to scare people. And as much as we love them, they aren't real. Or are they? In 1803, years before Mary Shelley had thought up Frankenstein, by the way, she was 18 when this story was written. So cool. Makes it even cooler. Yeah. So an Italian physicist named Giovanni Aldini was working on a project involving galvanism. Now, if you don't know what that is, don't worry, we're going to explain it. So galvanism is essentially the generation of electric current within biological organisms and the contraction slash convulsion of biological muscle tissue upon contact with electric current. So essentially people were trying to figure out how to use electricity to move a person's muscles, much like we see in the story of Frankenstein. In 1803, a criminal named George Foster who had murdered his wife and child by drowning them was sentenced to death by hanging and Giovanni Aldini had some plans for the deceased lunatic. He was actually given permission to experiment on Foster's body after death. So Giovanni, being the mad scientist that he was, said let's get weird and started hooking up electrical current to George Foster's body. Now, according to a reporter for the Newgate Calendar, they said that, quote, on the first application of the process to the face, the jaws of the deceased criminal began to quiver, and the adjoining muscles were horribly contorted, and one eye was actually opened. In the subsequent part of the process, the right hand was raised and clenched, and the legs and thighs were set in motion. Now, apparently, everyone who observed this experimentation truly believed that George Foster was being brought back to life. And in fact, one man who was a surgeon actually had a heart attack after leaving the venue and died outside. Yeah, he was so scared by these convulsions of this dead murderer that he literally, like, his heart just couldn't take it, and he just collapsed right outside. And maybe this is because so much time has passed and we know more about 
I don't know, the medical field and electricity now. But oh, I feel yeah. like, I mean, it makes sense why they would move. It's not like he was, like, talking. Yeah, but, I mean, in that moment, I can't even imagine what you would I be do thinking. Get it, especially being 1803. But, I mean, this, this poor man, like, dying from this? Jeez. So, but Giovanni wasn't the only person to try to bring back the dead. Another man named Andrew Yuri, who was a geologist living in Glasgow, had the same thought as Giovanni Aldini. Andrew believed that many doctors were just having a good time hooking up dead people to electricity to watch them twitch, but he believed that with the right kind of power, it would truly be possible to bring the dead back to life. Like I'm saying, you know, they're pretty much just twitching, but it's like being alive is different from a machine making somebody move. Absolutely, right? yeah. He wanted to do the former. So the body of a murderer named Matthew Clysdale was donated to science and Andrew Yuri said, let's get weird and conducted an experiment in front of spectators. On November 18th, 1818 in a medical theater at the University of Glasgow, Andrew made a series of cuts to the dead flesh revealing Matthew Clydesdale's spine. Andrew let some of the blood drain before a strong battery was connected to the spinal cord and shocked with high-powered electricity. And here's how the experiment was described. Quote, Every muscle of the body was immediately agitated with convulsive movements, resembling a violent shuddering from cold. The left side was most powerfully convulsed at each renewal of the electric current. On moving the second rod from the hip to the heel, the knee being previously bent, the leg was thrown out with such violence as nearly to overturn one of the assistants, who in vain attempted to prevent its extension. Every muscle in his countenance was simultaneously thrown into fearful action, rage, horror, despair, anguish, and ghastly smiles. Not the smiles. United hideous expression in the murderer's face. At this period, several of the spectators were forced to leave the theater from terror or sickness as many fainted. But here's a really strange detail. When Andrew attempted to stimulate the lungs of the corpse, he was surprised to find that it actually worked. The lungs were inhaling and exhaling, but there was no way that Matthew Clydesdale's body could come back to life because he had lost too much blood. But Andrew believed that if he hadn't, it was entirely possible. Nowadays, we actually have things called defibrillators that produce electric current to the heart in order to get it beating again. So Andrew wasn't actually that wrong here. But let's move on to some extremely disturbing people. Yeah, let's talk about one of the biggest pieces of shit to ever live. Yes, Hitler fits that description, but we're not talking about him. However, we are talking about someone very close to him. In 1937, the Nazi party was on the rise, terrorizing the world with its insatiable lust for power, and a man named Joseph Mengele was personally responsible for some of the most horrific crimes to ever occur. Joseph had received his doctorates in anthropology and medicine, joining the SS in 1938. Years later, in May of 1943, Joseph was assigned to the concentration camp Auschwitz, where he conducted medical experiments on human beings. For some reason, the Nazis were obsessed with studying twins, and Joseph had absolutely no regard for the health or safety of many of his victims. He was so brutal that he earned the nickname the Angel of Death. 
one said story is that Mangala had been overseeing the birth of a child of a prisoner who he hoped would give birth to twins. Now, when it was discovered that the woman had not birthed twins, Joseph, with a smile on his face, grabbed the newborn by its legs and hurled it into an oven. He's such a fucking piece of shit. Like, absolutely disgusting. So another witness to Joseph's madness explained that he would pin his victim's eyeballs to the wall in his lab like some sort of fucked up butterfly collection. That was also one of his interests, the human eye. He was obsessed with heterochromia iridum, which is a condition where people have two different colored eyes. And he was so fascinated that he even injected chemicals into people's eyes, hoping to change the color. On top of those horrible things that we just described, Joseph was known to inject different illnesses in his victims in order to study the effects, like dosing pregnant women with typhoid to see if their child would be born with the sickness. It's been said that Joseph experimented on over 730 pairs of twins, most of whom were children, and only 30 of those survived his horrific studies. His experiments included using one twin as a control subject, while the other one was subject to the most heinous studies that included forced insemination, amputations, chemical injections, and he even clamped children's limbs to induce gangrene. When other soldiers became depressed at the instruction of sending people to the gas chamber, Joseph was delighted by the terror. The strangest part is that when allies were closing in, Joseph fled the country and his whereabouts were unknown for decades. This is not the guy you want on the loose. No, he's a fucking serial killer. So one day in 1979, a 68-year-old man who went by the name Gerhard died of a stroke while having a swim in the ocean in Brazil. Now, eventually in 1985, forensic experts were able to identify that that man was actually Joseph Mengele. But it gets even weirder. It was discovered that Joseph made his way to South America in 1959 to meet up with a Nazi sympathizer named Wolfgang Gerhard. And when Wolfgang died, Joseph stole his identity and used it until his death. So that's how he was able to go undetected for literal decades. So crazy. I mean, we could do an entire episode on this asshole, but we will spare you guys some of the more grisly details. And yes, like we did not even scratch the surface of his crimes. Now let's move on to one of the most unnerving and just disturbing love stories, if you can even call it that, ever told. The strange romance of Dr. Carl Tanzler and his corpse bride. Karl Tanzler, also known as Count Karl von Kossel, was a German-born radiology technologist serving patients at the Marine Hospital in Key West during the 1930s. We're talking about Key West, Florida here. Yes, we are. And during his time at the hospital, he became acquainted with a young woman named Maria Elena Milagro de Hoyos, who was suffering the effects of tuberculosis. Dr. Tanzler became so obsessed with Maria while treating her for her illness that he began to shower her with gifts, which included clothing and jewelry, and he also professed his love to her. Now, as far as we know, that affection was not reciprocated by Maria. No, definitely not. 
Despite Carl's attempt to save Maria's life, sadly, on October 25th, 1931, she succumbed to her illness. And by the way, Maria was 20 years old and old Carl the Creep was 54. I don't call him a creep because of the age difference, but uh, you'll see why in a second. Yeah, so when Maria died, Carl was absolutely heartbroken, claiming that she was his one true love. Although again, I don't think that she felt the same way. But anyway, Carl paid for Maria's funeral, and with the permission of Maria's family, he constructed an above-ground mausoleum, which he visited almost every night. Dude, like, no offense, but move on. Yeah, chill out, bro. So then one evening in April of 1933, in the darkness of the night, Carl the Creeper removed Maria's body from her tomb and carted it back to his house on a toy wagon. And I can't even imagine what, like, witnesses who saw this happening were thinking. And, I mean, this isn't even, like, love. This isn't your one true love. This is your obsession. Like, especially considering she did not feel the same way, you are obsessed with this young woman. Yeah, you're a stalker, for sure. So, back at his house, Carl attached the corpse's bones using piano wire and fitted her face with glass eyeballs. But, you know, decomposition is a real thing, so as the flesh of Maria's body began to fall off, Carl used a wax concoction to replace it. Also, Maria's hair had been falling out, so Carl made sure to fit her with a homemade wig. He also filled Maria's body with rags and dressed her remains with stockings, a dress, and jewelry. And whenever Maria's corpse began to smell bad, he just gave her a douse of perfume. Jeez. So sick. So rumors began to spread that Carl had turned Maria into his own private life-size doll. And soon, Maria's sister actually found out. For this to become like a rumor, do you think he told some... I mean, surely he was happy with himself. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if he was telling people about this, but people did find out somehow. He must have told somebody. So Maria's sister eventually confronted Carl at his home, and he was quickly arrested by authorities. Now, Carl had been sleeping next to Maria's corpse, but he also, phew, this is really nasty, he inserted a vaginal tube into Maria's deceased body, which it's believed that he used to, well, you know. So, before his arrest, some witnesses explained that they saw Carl dancing with Maria's corpse in front of his window while he blasted some sweet old-timey tunes. Oh god, I can just... It, that's a horrifying that's sight. A, yeah, that's a horrifying, like, just in my mind, picturing that is so fucked up. So in 1940, a trial was held for Carl, and he was charged with wantonly and maliciously destroying a grave and removing a body without authorization. But he was released because the statute of limitations for this crime had expired, so he never served any time for this. However... After his hearing, authorities buried Maria's remains in an unmarked grave so that this, you know, wouldn't happen again. But that didn't stop Creepy Carl from trying. He eventually created his own Maria doll using a death mask, which he slept with until his death in 1952. Wait, what's a death mask? So I looked this up, and the definition of a death mask is a likeness, or uh, typically in wax or plaster cast, of a person's face after their death, usually made by taking a cast or impression from the corpse. Death masks may be mementos of the dead or be used for creation of portraits. So yeah, he like, 
I'm assuming he did this while he was still in possession of Maria's body, just in case, like, if he ever did get arrested and they took her body away, that he could make his own doll. That's just so, I mean, that's just so terrifying to think of sleeping next to a doll with the mask of a woman who is now deceased who never loved you anyway. Yeah, weirdo. So before we get into the next mad scientist, let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So although most of these mad scientists experimented on other people or animals, one in particular actually experimented on himself. How sweet. An English neurologist named Henry Head was fascinated by sensory nerves, and he wanted to see if people who suffer from nerve damage could regain any kind of sensation. Now, he had tried tests on several different patients, but he wasn't satisfied with his results. And patients couldn't explain their feelings, so Henry, being the madman he was, decided to give up a portion of his own body to science. In April of 1903, Henry asked a surgeon friend of his to cut the radial nerve in his own arm, which controls everything from movement and pain, and had him try reconnecting it for nerve regeneration and miraculously, the experiment worked. After three months with zero nerves in his arm, Henry could feel pain again. During the time that he had no nerves in his arm, Henry's arm was subject to things that, if you had nerves, would be excruciatingly painful, like having a smoldering hot piece of iron burn his skin. It's pretty, pretty wild stuff. Yeah, I heard that like they would push like pins and stuff into his arm and they're like, do you feel anything? He's like, no, I don't feel anything. Oh God, it makes me squirm. But it's like, even if you had like this hot iron put to your arm, that would still burn off your flesh. Oh yeah. So so <laughs> like still damage. There's still damage done to your skin, but I guess he really just didn't care. He really just wanted to try to figure this out on his own. Yeah, so sometimes these scientific tests turn out to be very useful in our modern world. Other times they fail miserably, and sometimes they are just downright weird as hell. Take Max Pentenkoffer, for example, a Bavarian chemist and hygienist who ate the diarrhea of a man who died from the bacterial disease cholera just to see if he would get sick. Why? Yeah, I know, so disgusting. So, spoiler alert, he did. 
But due to the fact that he ate some baking soda right after tossing back some brown, the acid in it was able to neutralize some of the bacteria, so Max only became mildly ill and he didn't die. Or how about Louis Joylin West, an American psychiatrist who in 1962 gave a male elephant named Tusco 3,000 doses of LSD to see how the animal would react. Spoiler alert, it died. That is so fucking sad. I know, it's really like, sad. Uh, like, why? That would have been so terrifying for that elephant. Yeah. So the conclusion of the experiment was that elephants are hypersensitive to LSD. So it's like you you dose this poor animal with 3,000 doses, and to come to find out, elephants are actually very sensitive to that drug. Right, so even like a, less than a normal dose for a human would be more than enough for an elephant. Yes, there's also British scientist John Burden Sanderson Haldane, also known as JBS. I see why. Yeah, who literally crushed his own spine while experimenting the effects of decompression. He suffered lifelong pain and bloody noses often, and when colleagues couldn't find him in the lab, they would just follow the trail of blood. Haldane was also kind of a masochist as well, because when he was a young boy, his father, who was also a scientist, would offer him up as a test subject, but John actually seemed to love it. His father once threw him overboard a ship in a 155-pound diving suit, and then raised and lowered him to study the effects of the bends, which for those of you who don't know can occur when a diver surfaces too quickly, gas bubbles form in the body, and can in some cases kill you. John also said that the years that he served in the army were some of his most fond memories because he loved the idea of pain and he loved to kill. Red flag. Yeah, big red flags. In 1964, John was diagnosed with colorectal cancer and he wrote this poem before his death. Cancer's a funny thing. I wish I had the voice of Homer to sing of rectal carcinoma. This kills a lot more chaps, in fact then were bumped off when Troy was sacked. The poem ends like this. I know that cancer often kills, but so do cars and sleeping pills. And it can hurt one till one sweats, so can bad teeth and unpaid debts. A spot of laughter, I am sure, often accelerates one's cure. So let us patients do our bit to help the surgeons make us fit. There are so many films that have been inspired by these incredibly smart and deranged humans like James Bond's Dr. Julius No, Jurassic Park's Dr. Henry Wu, and Dr. Who's Davros. Whether the film is a sci-fi, horror, comedy, or action, the creation of the Mad Scientist is here to stay. Even Marvel movies have seen the likes of Mad Scientists, which oftentimes are villain origin stories. We've talked about many medical scientists so far, but let's take a second to talk about scientists who study behavior and mental processes, the doctors of psychology. A Canadian psychologist named Albert Bandera was very interested in social learning and aggression, so he conducted an experiment called the Bobo Doll Experiment. In this test, he had 36 young girls and 36 young boys between the ages of three and six placed into separate groups. There were three groups, one with a non-aggressive adult, one with an extremely aggressive adult, and one with no adult at all. He then placed the adults in their own rooms while the children watched. 
Inside each room were toys and a blow-up clown doll named Bobo. The aggressive adult began to beat the doll with a hammer and curse at it with anger. The non-aggressive adult ignored Bobo the clown and played with other toys quietly. And the third group, again, didn't have an adult. Albert then sent children from each group into a room, and the kids who had watched the aggressive adult largely imitated that adult by beating Bobo with a hammer, while the non-aggressive adult group calmly played with their toys. And this proved that children learn through watching others. Which, which is, is, yeah, really insane. Geez. Yeah, that's that's crazy. Especially, I mean, the fact that they're just using a doll clown makes it that much creepier. But, I mean... It, it it showed results. Yeah, poor Bobo got the shit beat out of him with a no, hammer by a not, bunch of little kids. Not poor Bobo. He deserves it. <laughs> yeah, not poor Bobo. So there are many different experiments that specifically target the brain. And among those is hypnotherapy, which is described as the use of hypnosis as a therapeutic technique. And yes, oftentimes it works. So this is actually a funny story. My grandpa was living proof of this. Oh, he, I remember this. Yeah, so he attended a hypnosis seminar in the 90s in order to quit smoking cigarettes. So the speaker told everybody to go outside and enjoy their last cigarette. And when they came back in, the session started. Now, I don't know all the details of this session, but by the time it was over, my grandpa said that he thought that having a cigarette made him physically sick. Like he was disgusted by the thought of smoking. That was the last time he actually ever smoked. And apparently, hypnotherapy works by targeting the psychological triggers and getting people to imagine the many unpleasant outcomes associated with smoking. And the American Cancer Society still does promote hypnosis as a successful technique for quitting smoking. But one article that I came across about hypnosis really stuck with me. In November of 1909, an amateur hypnotist named William Davenport was on a mission to use his practice to bring the dead back to life. Davenport stood inside a morgue in Somerville, New Jersey, leaning over the body of deceased 35-year-old piano mover Robert Simpson. He placed his ear to the dead man's chest and began to whisper, Bob, your heart action. Attend. Listen, Bob, your heart action is strong. Bob, your heart begins to beat. These attempts proved to be unsuccessful, so Davenport began to raise his voice. Bob, do you hear me? He continued. Bob, your heart is starting. But sadly, none of Davenport's attempts worked. But that's not the end of the story, or the strangest part. The night before, another hypnotist by the name of Arthur Everton held a performance at an opera house in Somerville, New Jersey, which Robert Simpson had attended. Robert Simpson had been working with Everton as what's called a leader, meaning that Everton would call for volunteers to go under his spell, and the leader would be the first to raise their hand. So it was obviously like a fixed performance. Right, exactly. And the theory was that after showing the hypnosis success, others would happily elect to be hypnotized too. But on this particular night, things didn't go as planned. Robert was brought on stage and placed on two chairs, his head resting on one and his feet on the other. Everton then stepped on Robert's stomach and jumped off. After this, two of Everton's assistants lifted Robert to his feet as Everton cried out, Relax! 
As soon as he did so, Robert's body went entirely limp. And as it did, Robert's body slid out of the hands of the assistants, falling to the floor and striking his head with force on one of the chairs on his way down. Doctors rushed to save his life, but it was too late. Robert was deceased. Everton was actually charged with manslaughter, but to avoid jail time, he told authorities that Robert was merely in a cataleptic state and just needed to like be awoken, hence why Davenport was trying to do so. But so, yeah, he was like, oh, um, yeah, no, he's not, he's not actually dead. I, I didn't, it's not my fault. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't die. He's He'll alive. wake up soon, yeah. So eventually they found that Everton was full of shit, and an autopsy showed that Robert died from a ruptured aorta. But some doctors suggest that Robert was suffering from an underlying condition and that his death was just an untimely coincidence. Now, Everton eventually posted bail, and later a grand jury decided not to prosecute him. But years later, during the Prohibition era, Everton was caught with over $6,000 worth of booze. When arrested, he proclaimed that he could have used his hypnotic powers to stop the police, but he chose not to because he's a law-abiding citizen. Yeah, I just think you don't know what you're doing. Yeah, pretty much. And the police were probably like, you're a fucking idiot, dude. So, strangers, what did we learn today? We learned that if you were a murderous lunatic in previous centuries, the government would pretty much let any weirdo with an idea experiment on your dead body in the name of science. We also learned that Lord Byron is a story-stealing doucher, and that Polly Dolly should get the credit that he deserves. And mostly, we learned that not every experiment should be carried out, especially one that involves using a corpse as a sex doll. Shame on you, Creepy Carl. Or giving an elephant a shitload of LSD, because we all know that the only living being that could take that much acid was Jim Morrison. Today's horror tip comes to us from the 1985 film Reanimator. If your new roommate plans to turn your basement into a science lab, find a new roommate, because chances are he will bring your dead cat back to life or possibly murder your pervert professor. Also, don't ever try to blackmail someone learning how to create zombies. It won't go well for you. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to this episode of The Dark Parts. Yes, next week we will have a very interesting episode that actually coincides with an episode that we're going to be covering on Going West, which is our true crime podcast. So don't forget to check that episode out before you check out next week's uh, Dark Parts episode. I think that will be kind of a, a more interesting way to go about it. Yes, it's going to be like a double feature, essentially. So yeah, pretty sure, much a double feature. Exactly. So make sure you go and check out both of those episodes. Make sure you go and subscribe to The Dark Parts and also Going West if you haven't already. Thank you guys so much for listening. And remember, if you have any spooky stories that you want us to cover on this show, please email us at thedarkpartspodcast at gmail.com and send us your recommendations. We love receiving those. It really helps us out and gives us an idea of what you guys want to listen to. So send us some stuff. All right, guys. We'll see you next time in the dark parts. (laughs) 